Well, when I first came to the United States from England about 20 years ago, it's hard to believe that, but uh, I, I uh, came to Camden, New Jersey. Camden is uh, right opposite uh, uh, Philadelphia, just across the Delaware River, and uh, uh, I, I came and I was serving as uh, a part of a ministry that ministered to uh, uh, urban youth and, uh, and, and at-risk teens. And uh, as I moved into Camden, I moved with about a dozen other team members into this large old house. And in fact, this house was not really in a very good state because only three outlets in the entire house worked. Uh, and, and none of the lights. We spent the entire summer living by candlelight. Uh, so uh, we moved in, and about a week after we moved in, we were out and about, and we came in at the end of a day of ministry, and we found that the place had been robbed. It had been burglarized. Now, uh, even though there were 12, uh, 20-somethings uh, living there, we didn't really have a whole lot of stuff, and so I think that they got away with uh, one backpack, uh, one radio, and uh, all of our alarm clocks, and a couple of pairs of socks. I'm not really quite sure why they took the socks, but uh, then again, if uh, socks can go missing in the dryer, it's hardly surprising that they go missing when your house is robbed. You know, I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune of having your home broken into, but it's not even so much the things that are taken. It is just the terrible sense of invasion and the knowledge of the fact that somebody has been rifling through your stuff. Well, we were out the next day, and uh, I was walking with one of my teammates, and they said, that guy in front of us, he's got my backpack. And so I did what any self-respecting person would do, and I ran up to him. I snatched the backpack off his back, and I said, where's the rest of our stuff? Well, no, I didn't, actually. I, I, I thought about it, but he was about six foot six and just as wide, and uh, I thought that probably isn't a real smart idea of what to do. But I thought about what I would say if I ever was kind of in a, a nice, safe, comfortable place where I could confront the person who had broken into this house. And I wonder if, if you've ever had something stolen from you, if you've ever thought about what you would say to those who stole from you. Well, as we come to God's Word this morning, we come to maybe a little bit of a strange passage, maybe a little bit, quite frankly, of an uncomfortable passage. In the Old Testament book of Malachi, we've been studying together over recent weeks uh, this wonderful book. It's the last book of the Old Testament, and so if you have a copy of the Scriptures with you, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me there, because what we're going to see together in Malachi chapter 3 in the time that we have is what it is that God has to say to those who have stolen from Him. Uh, turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. If you're looking for it, it is, the, as I said, the last book of the Old Testament. So if you can find the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, just go back a page or so and you'll find yourself in our passage this morning. And beginning in verse 6 of Malachi chapter 3, we read these words. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, 
and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear fruit, says the Lord of hosts. And then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. Well, this uh, um, passage kind of picks up from where Pastor Rich was last week, if you were here with us. And uh, in that passage, we saw that there was kind of a cry on behalf of the people for, for justice, uh, for God to, uh, uh, to, to, to bring judgment. And we actually um, learn from that passage that judgment is, in fact, a, a sobering, fearful thing. And at the beginning of the passage that I've just read from here in verse 6, it sort of stands as like a hinge passage. And it's a promise that we see here, a declaration of the character of God. And it stands as, as a call for the people to change. He starts off and he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And so, so God reminds the people of his unchanging, immutable character. Uh, we all know people who, uh, uh, who change based on what's convenient. We all know people who, who, who grow and develop and, 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 and go different direction over time, but God eternally remains perfect and the same. He is unchanging. His commands his plans, his purposes do not change. And in fact, he reminds the people here of this truth in order to give them comfort. And he says, I am a covenant-keeping God. It is because I do not change that you will not be consumed. In fact, here in verses 6 and 7, we could kind of paraphrase uh, what God is saying through the prophet Malachi, and he is reminding them and saying, even in the midst of your unfaithfulness as a nation, O people of Israel. I always perfectly remain faithful, and on that you can rely. Isn't it good to know that God is utterly unchanging? He is constant. He is unshakable. And here he gives this wonderful reminder, even though from their forefathers through generations, the people had been turning, turning, turning from God. He says, I do not change. I'm still here. In fact, he gives this this invitation. He says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. What What a wonderful invitation. What a wonderful reminder, and and really it's an expression of the gospel message itself, that God stands ready saying, come back to me. I stand here waiting. Return to me. He speaks this to a people 
who have gone their own way to a people who have been unfaithful time and time and time again. And it's a message, it's a declaration in which he is announcing, no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've been away, no matter how you have turned from me, I'm still here. Come back. Come back to me. Return to me. And I will return to you. It's the invitation of the heart of God. And maybe this morning, even before we move any further, any deeper into this passage, God has you here this morning simply to hear those words that the invitation is for you. Return to me. I'm not the one who moved. I'm not the one who left, but I am the one who's standing ready to receive you. But all through this book of Malachi, as God has sent his messenger to the people, they have had a hard heart as God has spoken to them. And and as God speaks time and time again in this book of Malachi, he anticipates the hard-hearted response of the people. And so we actually see that here because God makes this invitation, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But then at the end of verse 7 it says, but you say, how shall we return? They're not looking for information. This is not the people saying, Oh, tell us, God, how do we repent? Uh, How do we come back to you? How do we restore this relationship? No, the attitude of the people that Malachi is speaking to here is, huh, how are we supposed to return to you, God, when we've not done anything wrong? It is an arrogant response. And what we see take place after God gives this call to change is that we see that he lays before the people the crime that they have committed. And actually, he could very well have chosen many different things, and we've already seen several different things that God has spoken about through this book of Malachi. But he lays out, if you like, one of many possible exhibits in what he shows us in verses 8 and 9. He says, Will man rob God? yet you are robbing me. And, and the people hear this as, as Malachi stands in the streets and declares the word of God to them. And, uh, and the response that, that uh, they give is, how have we robbed you? And you can almost imagine the scene, can't you? It's like, robbed you, God? What do you mean? I mean, did, did we come and, and, and pick your pocket and steal your wallet right out of your back pocket while you weren't looking, God? That's ridiculous. Oh, oh, has some of the precious family silver gone missing and you're just looking for someone to blame? What do you mean we've robbed you, God? And he lays out for them this case. He says, in your tithes and in your contributions. In verse 9, he says, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, before I go any further, and you probably got this even from the title of the message, I know when we talk about money, it can be kind of uncomfortable. I know that sometimes there's an attitude in the church 
or amongst people who look at the church and say, all that the church is interested in is your money. It's funny that nobody says that about Amazon.com because you know what? What they're interested in? Your money. No, the church isn't just interested in your money. But we do talk about this very important issue that touches every one of our lives. Why? Because it is a statement of what we value. And and here, God speaks to his people, and he says to them, you're robbing me. And the way in which you are robbing me is is in your tithes, and, and your offerings. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see uh, tithes and offerings spoken of a lot, and essentially uh, the tithes were a tenth or 10% of the, uh, of, the, of the wealth, of the increase of the income of the people. And so, for example, if you were, a, uh, uh, say, a dairy farmer, uh, then it would, be, it would be from the first and the best of your, uh, of your herds. Uh, if you were a, uh, a, a barley uh, grower, then it would be from your barley or, or, or from your wheat or from your flock if you're a shepherd, whatever it may be, whatever your wealth, whatever your income was in. And it was to be dedicated to the Lord. And so that's the tithes. And then the offerings were those gifts given over and above the tithe as an act of thanksgiving to God. And they were often, in many cases, uh, referred to as free will offerings because they were over and above. But it says here that, that you are cursed with a curse because you are robbing me of these things. Now, We've already seen through the book of Malachi this idea of, of curses, and, and, and we have to understand it in light of the book of Deuteronomy. You see, God made a covenant with his people Israel. He called them to be a, 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 a chosen and set-apart people, and he promised them that he would bring them into this land of their own. And he said that, that I, if you are faithful to me, if you keep my covenant, if you obey my commands, you will experience great blessings that come from doing things my way, because my way works. But he also says, if you are unfaithful, if you depart from me, if you go after other gods, then there are consequences of that, because you will miss out on the blessings, and instead you will experience these curses. And and, and these curses will impact your lives. There are consequences to your disobedience. And so here in Malachi, prophet Malachi speaking the word of the Lord is saying, listen, you are experiencing the curses. You're experiencing the consequences of your disobedience. Part of that is that, that, that the land itself is not bearing fruit in the way in which I desire to cause it to bring because I cannot bless disobedience. Part of it was the fact that these tithes and these offerings were to be set apart in the temple for the provision of the leaders, uh, of the priests, of the Levites, and also for the provision for the needy within the community. But when there was lack with that, then the leaders became unfaithful and tried to cheat in order to, to get their stuff. And those who had needs within the community had no recourse or place to go. So God is reminding them of not only the crime committed, but the consequences of this crime. And he explains to them that you are under a curse because you are robbing from me. 
he goes on to, to call them to the cost of obedience. Look at verse 10, the beginning of verse 10. He says, bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So it seems that, the, that some of the people were giving some of the offering, but they weren't bringing the full thing. They were maybe just kind of tipping God. You know, here's enough just to kind of be getting on with. And, uh, they, they were not bringing the best. They were not bringing the full. And so he instructs them of the costly obedience that he requires from them. And he says, bring it into the storehouse. This is actually a reference to the temple. The temple was the, the gathering place for worship in all of Israel. And, and, and you may be aware that there were different courts in the temple. There were courts where the people would come in to worship. Uh, there was the court of the Gentiles, and then there was the, the, uh, um, uh, the main court of worship for the Jews. And then there was the holy place where sacrifices were made, and, and the, the holy of holies, which was entered only once a year as a dedicated and set-apart place for special offering and prayers. But on the side of the temple, there were these, if you like, antechambers, these large rooms that were storerooms. And so the idea was that when, when, when a farmer came and bought their tithes and offerings, they would present them to the priest. A portion of that would be presented as a sacrifice, and the remainder of it would be put into the barley room or the wheat room or one of the other storerooms, and then the Levites, the priests, would be provided for out of that. The poor in the community would be provided for out of that. The upkeep of the temple would be provided for through that, and ministry would take place through what was there. And so the instruction is for one of the costly obedience, bring in the tithe. But it's interesting because I asked the question at the beginning, what would you say to somebody who had robbed from you? And we see the heart of God here because when he confronts those who have robbed from him, he calls them to return to him. He calls them to obedience. But listen to this. He calls them to come and receive what I like to call the consequence of faithfulness or the reward of faithfulness. In fact, look with me at the second half of verse 10, because he says, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So what does God say to those who are robbing him? You're missing out on the blessing I want to give you. Don't hold back. In fact, this is, I, I, I want to be careful here because we need to understand that there are many charlatans out there who misunderstand, who falsely teach and corrupt this passage. It is one of the favorites of what are often called prosperity gospel preachers. This is not God saying, give me your money and you will all be driving a Maserati by the time that you go home today. This is not God saying, send me uh, or send this preacher a large amount of money so he can buy his jet and just reach out and touch the TV and you'll be blessed. This is not, that, that, that's garbage and it's unbiblical. God is not saying, I will make you rich. He's saying, I delight to bless and to provide every need of yours. 
And there's a big difference between needs and wants. But what is really interesting is this is the only place in all of Scripture where God tells us to test him. There are other places in Scripture where we see, for example, it said that, that, that God tested Abraham. But this is the only place that God actually extends the invitation and says, put me to the test and see if I do not prove faithful in this. It has to do with our finances. But look at the kind of reward. Look at the kind of uh, re- uh, consequence of faithfulness that he speaks about here because it gives us some sense of understanding of what is being said here. He says, I'll pour, open the windows of heaven, pour out uh, a blessing until there is no more need. But then he says, I, verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer so, you that, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And so, so first of all, he talks about uh, the, the, the abundant provision that he longs to give to his people. He talks about a bountiful harvest and a restoration of the fortunes of the land, which go back to the promises that he made, the blessings that he made back in the book of Deuteronomy. But he also gives the reason for this. He says, so that all of the surrounding nations will call you blessed, for the land will be one of delight. You see, God does all things always for him. His glory. The wonderful thing is that he chooses to bring glory to his name in a way that brings blessing to his people. And so what he's talking about here is he's talking about delighting to bring blessing upon his people so that the surrounding people, those who don't yet know him, would sit up and pay attention and and recognize God's hand of favor upon his people. Now, I, I don't know exactly what this is like because nobody's ever named a building after me. But uh, as you're aware, there are a lot of people who, uh, 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 perhaps because they are very generous or because of some great accomplishment, they get a building named after them. They get their name written on a plaque. And, and, and so everybody who goes to that hospital wing or everybody who goes to that school or everyone who goes into that office complex, they see this person's name. And I would imagine there's kind of a lot of prestige that goes with that. I would imagine that, uh, uh, that, that whenever this name is seen, you know, people are kind of like, well, I wonder who he was. Oh, I wonder how much money he gave. He must be really successful. And, and people think about this, and it, it kind of adds prestige to, to, to this person who this, this building is named after. Well, there's a sense in which that's what God's saying to his people, Israel, and this is still true for us as the church today. That, that God delights to work in the lives of his people in such a way that it is clear to everybody who cares to look that he is on the move. And that's what he's saying here to Israel. He's saying, turn to me. He's saying, be faithful to what I have called you to do. And he makes this incredible promise, but he says, it's for the sake of of my glory and my fame amongst the nations. Now, when we're talking about the book of Malachi, or when we're talking about a passage like this, 
sometimes there are some questions that come up because the reality is that we are not Old Testament Israel. That the promise of the blessings here are, 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 are not directly correspondent to us. I mean, if you work in an office, then the promise that, uh, that, that your vines will be fruitful, don't, it, it doesn't quite correlate, does it? Uh, and, and so we have to ask the question, uh, what do we do with this? What is the timeless truth of this passage, which is true? How do we apply this to our lives today? And what does this have to say? And so there's a sense in which this passage presents to us four questions that we need to answer in order to understand, uh, really, on this subject in particular, related to giving and finances. And, and, and those questions are, are quite simply, oh, first of all, why do we give? Secondly, what do we give? Then where do we give it? And is the promise still for us today? So at the risk of sounding a little bit like a teacher over these next few minutes with um, some slides that are going to be quite full, we're just going to walk through uh, some of these. And I hope that uh, you'll find it not only instructive, but also that the Lord will, will use it to encourage your heart and to challenge you in the same way as this message through Malachi was intended for the people of Israel all those years ago. And so, so why do we give? Uh, it's a question a lot of people ask. And, and, and uh, if we can go to the next slide, you'll, you'll, you'll see that the, it starts with the fact that well, God commands it. God commands it. We see this all throughout the pages of Scripture. God is God, and he has the right as God to make demands of his people. We may not like that, we may struggle with it because we like to be kind of independent. We just celebrated Independence Day, right? The reality is we are not independent. We are entirely dependent upon God. And every follower of Jesus Christ has to come to that place where we recognize our dependence upon God, that he is God and we are not. And, and, and through the pages of Scripture, God commands us to give. Why do we give? We give because he is worthy. We've been singing about the worth and the glory and the splendor of God. I, I, I joked about, um, uh, about Amazon.com. Uh, all they want is your money. Well, we, we don't tend to have a problem giving to Amazon.com because we perceive that we receive value in exchange. Well, here's the reality. There is no one of greater worth than God. There is nothing that our hearts... Could, uh, could fill their affections more than God. He is worthy of all that we have to give and so much more. But we also find in the pages of Scripture that we give in order to remind us of our dependence on him as the source of all things. There in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God warns the people even before they ever entered into the promised land. He says, be careful that when you go in and you receive this abundance and, and, and you get to eat from stuff that you didn't even plant, be careful that you do not fool yourself into thinking that my power and the strength of my hand accomplished all of this for me. He says, no, remember that it is the Lord who is your provider. Folks, every good and perfect gift that you and I have is from God. James 1.17. We also give in order to declare our trust and allegiance to God alone. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 5, 24 to his disciples when he talks about the fact that, that no one can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. And we live in a world that ultimately at the heart of it, the majority of people are chasing after stuff. 
they're running after materialism. They're running after things that money can buy. But, but we, as those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have bowed the knee before him and seen and understand the greatness of the glory of who he is and the salvation that's in him, we are to be distinct from the world. And one of the ways in which we show that distinction is that we are not attached to the things that the world is attached to. We give in order to express our thanksgiving. Again, we see this all through the pages of Scripture. Uh, we give to expand and extend the work of ministry for the salvation of others. Again, uh, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5, and he tells a rather perplexing parable about it in Luke chapter 16. But speaking of this idea of extending ministry, that, that the gospel goes forth as the people of God contribute to the ministry. But we also give, uh, um, uh, Randy Alcorn talks about this in his book, uh, The Treasure Principle. We give to loosen the grip of materialism and greed on our lives. The antidote, he says, to greed, to selfishness, to materialism, is to be open-handed with the things that we have. So those are just a few of the reasons why we give, but, but what do we give? You see, here in this passage in Malachi is dealing with this issue of the tithe, and one of the questions that often comes up is, so what am I supposed to give? Uh, how much? And the first thing we've got to understand is that we are managers, that 100% that everything that we have comes from the Lord, and that it all belongs to Him. We are but stewards entrusted with the management, the care of the resources that we have. Sometimes the, the, the snare that we can fall into, especially if we've been around the church for any period of time, is we can kind of buy into this idea of, well, Scripture talks about the tithe, and so God's concerned about this 10%, but the other 90%, that's mine to do whatever I want to do with. No, 100% of it belongs to God and is to be used in a way that honors Him. We should seek God prayerfully over how we use all of our resources. But do we still tithe? This talks about bringing the full tithe in. And what about this idea of offerings that it talks about here? The tithes and the contributions or the tithes and the offerings. Well, in the New Testament, we don't really see the principle of tithing as an instruction that's given to us. But we do see uh, these points here. In 1 Corinthians 16.2, we're told that we are to give regularly. And uh, uh, it, it speaks about the idea of setting aside at the beginning of each week. Uh, but really, the principle there is quite simply that as, we, as the Lord prospers us, that we set aside. And so some people get paid once a week. Some people get paid twice a month. Some people get paid once a month. Others are maybe on commission, and, and they go periods of time without receiving something, and then they receive it on an irregular schedule. But the principle here is what is regular for you? And it probably has to do with when you receive the income that you receive. Uh, in that same uh, passage in 1 Corinthians 16, we are instructed that we are to give in keeping with our income. And so uh, this, this is 
uh, really related to what we might call percentage giving. A lot of people will, will go to the idea of a tenth at this, but, but the principle is that it should be in keeping with our income. You see, uh, God is so gracious. He doesn't, he doesn't give a dollar amount and say, this is what you need to give. Because for some people, that wouldn't be a big deal. For other people, that would be uh, such a, a, a bar that is so high they could never do it. But no, it's a percentage of our income, and we are to, uh, to give sacrificially. We are to uh, give in a way, as I put it at the bottom there, the New Testament principle is that of generosity. And so the reality is that for some of us, maybe we have actually been practicing tithing for many, many years, and that's a wonderful thing. But the Scriptures would really challenge us to ask the question, are we giving generously? Are we giving sacrificially? Because you know what? For some of us, with what God has blessed us with, with the resources that we have and the way that we're using other things, 10% is way too low. It's the floor rather than the ceiling. Maybe you've been given at 10% for a lot of years. Would the Lord prompt you to step out and trust Him with more than that? But the Scriptures also tell us, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that we are to give joyfully, not under compulsion. You know, it could be uncomfortable to talk about finances. It can be uncomfortable to talk about giving. And the purpose, when the Scriptures talk about it, is never to lay a guilt trip. In fact, the Scriptures are abundantly clear, this passage in particular, 2 Corinthians 9, that nobody should ever feel compelled to give out of a guilt trip. But rather that the Lord delights in a joyful giver. Now, is it always easy? No, that's not what this is talking about. Is it a stretch? Is it a sacrifice? Is it a test of faith? Is it, is it, uh, I don't know if I can do this, God, but, but, but I believe that you are able to do just what you promised, and so I'm going to take this step, even though it frightens the life out of me? Yeah. That, by the way, sums up a lot of the Christian life. But we're to give joyfully. So what do we give? Where do we give it? This is, a, again, an important question because here in our passage in Malachi, it says that we're to bring uh, our, our, the full tithe into the storehouse. And we don't have the temple today. Is it legitimate for us to, to uh, equate the temple with the local church today? Well, in a sense, yes. At least to a degree. You see, even in the New Testament, we find the principle that... that, that uh, as believers, we are privileged to be able to generously give in order to provide for those who minister, especially those who teach the Word. Uh, we also see that uh, uh, the principle of providing for the upkeep and the operation of the house of worship. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that, 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 that to a lesser degree uh, in the New Testament, but the principle is still there. There is a, a provision for the, the body. Also, to engage in various ministries to those who have needs. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, I put there, one of the examples of this is the way in which the, the giving by the body can provide for those who are widows who would have no other means of support. And also, we're to give, uh, in the context of the local church, for the advance of the gospel in general. We have a privilege 
of being able to partner together to accomplish as a body more than we could ever do alone. But what about giving to other ministries and other needs? While there's no strict, hard, and fast rule on this in Scripture, um, uh, we all know that there are various different needs that come up. There There are various different ministries and missionaries and different organizations that are doing great work. And where does that fall? And can, Is it right to take a portion from, from, from what we give to the local church to give to those other things? Well, maybe as a good rule of thumb, a good general principle here is, is, is to recognize the distinction from the Old Testament of the tithes and then the offerings. Uh, that maybe as, as you uh, speak with your spouse and you pray over it together or you decide as an individual in your heart uh, over how you will give regularly and sacrificially and in keeping with your income and joyfully, uh, that there's a that determination of how you'll partner with the local church. And then... Uh, the, over and above that come the, the, the contributions and the offerings, and if the Lord lays on your heart over and above that amount that you commit to the local church, then you partner with those who have needs, uh, maybe without, outside of the body or with individuals or with missionaries. And, and so that can be a good principle. What we find in Scripture is the priority, first of all, that we are to provide for the needs of our family. Because if we fail to do so, we are worse than an unbeliever. We are uh, to provide where we are being fed within the context of the local ministry that we are engaged in, the life of the church. And then as the Lord prompts and as he prospers, we're to provide elsewhere. And then finally, um, is this promise still for us today? Because I've already said that this promise, this test me in this, is the only place that we find in Scripture where God invites us to put him to the test. And so we really do need to ask, is this question for us? Do these guys on the TV uh, have something when they say, well, you know, God's going to bless you and he's going to... We need to understand, again, that his promise is provision of needs. And not just once. It's not that he will make us rich for the sake of being rich. But remember, this passage started off with God saying, I, the Lord, do not change. It's a statement of his faithfulness. This is an invitation and a reminder for us as his people that we can step out and trust the Lord. And we can trust in his faithfulness. If we step out in obedience to him, he will always show himself to be faithful to his word, faithful to his promise. We have a God who is able to provide according to our every need. But the purpose of God's provision, as again Randy Alcorn says in his book, The Treasure Principle, is to increase our standard of giving and not our standard of living. You see, oftentimes we have this idea of the fact that, you know, well, if I get more, then I can get more. But actually, the biblical principle is that if I get more, then I can give more. We see that in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. And uh, here, the Apostle Paul uses a, a farming analogy. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must, uh, uh, must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. We talked about that. 
For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And then it continues, verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And so the end game of all of this is ultimately the worship of God. It's ultimately the worship of God. And so what is the call of this passage? The call of this passage is remember the faithfulness of God. Where we have strayed from Him, respond to His invitation, return to me, return to me. And it is an invitation for us simply to take God at His word, to ask ourselves soberly, are we robbing God? Are we holding back what God has entrusted to us for ourselves? Where would he have us step up and put him to the test to discover that he indeed is utterly faithful? If we were to take the time, I would imagine we could go around the room and there would be a number of testimonies of people who would say, there was a time where I didn't know how I was going to pay a certain bill, and I kind of had the choice. I can either give or I can pay this bill. And I was really tempted to just go ahead and pay it and not give. But God convicted me. He challenged me, and I gave. And God provided every need. Because you know what? God delights to remind his people of his great faithfulness. Do you know that he's faithful? Do you trust that he is faithful? Because the invitation is return to me. Obey me. Draw near to me because I know how to show myself faithful and to meet your needs. And I delight to do it in a way in which your life will put on display for others to see the greatness of who I am. We can rob God by withholding what rightfully belongs to him. But faithfulness brings the promise of divine blessing. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, In many respects, our lives feel like a million miles away from ancient Israel in the days of Malachi, and yet, and yet we struggle with many of the same things. When it comes to this area of finances and giving, Lord, oftentimes it can make us uncomfortable. It feels like a vulnerable area, and it's, we confess, often difficult to trust you. 
rather than trust in the money and the resources that we have. But today, again, we reaffirm, we declare that we know and believe that everything that we have comes from you. Would you help us to use all that you have given to us faithfully, obediently, generously? Lord, would you provide for our every need? And Lord, would you give us courage to trust in you? Courage to put you to the test and to learn in a fresh way, in a new way, even this week how faithful and unchanging you are. Just as you have provided in the past, Lord, we delight that you are faithful to continue to do so. But I pray especially that should there be any here this morning who right now are in a place where they have a desperate need, a situation where they simply do not know where the resources will come from, oh Lord, would you provide? Would you intervene? Would you show yourself faithful once again? And would you do it in such a way that you would get the glory and that those who right now don't know you would see and would be drawn to you? We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen.